This podcast is intended solely for educational purposes and presents information of a general nature. It is not intended to guide or determine any specific individual situation and persons should consult qualified professionals before taking specific action. The views expressed in this podcast are those of the speakers and not those of Milliman. Hello and welcome to Critical Point, brought to you by Milliman. I'm Leslie Pink and I'll be your host today. In this episode of Critical Point, we're going to be talking about the rise of telehealth in the wake of the COVID-19 pandemic and what that could mean for the future of healthcare in the United States. Joining us today, virtually of course, are Mei Kwong, Executive Director of the Center for Connected Health Policy, and Susan Phillip, a senior healthcare consultant at Milliman with over 20 years of experience in healthcare policy, finance, and research. Hello to you both. Hi, Leslie. May, you're a nationally recognized leader on telehealth policy, leading the center's work on public policy issues as they affect telehealth on both the state and federal levels. And Susan, this is actually your second go-round on Critical Point. You joined me way back in 2018 for a podcast on telehealth. But a lot has changed since then, especially in the past six months. I'm curious, what are the biggest changes you've both seen when it comes to telehealth in light of COVID? Sure, I'll jump in. Um, Leslie, yeah, you're right. A lot has changed since uh, I was on the podcast in 2018. Um, You know, back then, I'm not sure that most people even knew what telehealth was. Uh, And now I think a lot of people have had some um, either direct experience with telehealth. You know, they maybe in the last couple of months, they've had a remote visit with their doctor, or maybe they know someone who has. So, you know, I think um, the expression I'm hearing a lot these days is that the genie is out of the bottle when it comes to telehealth. And the COVID-19 pandemic really has been a singular reason for the dramatic increase in use. Um, You know, I would say before... COVID-19, we saw telehealth use for some urgent care, maybe some behavioral health visits, and it really was a way to increase access to rural communities. But in the last few months, there's really been a a really big increase in the use. And um, in the early months of the pandemic, many states have asked hospitals and practices to really halt all elective procedures. So given the need to preserve protective, um, personal protective equipment for healthcare workers, it was really important to limit in-person visits to those folks who really needed that visit to be in-person. Um, you know, and patients are still looking for ways to get the healthcare they need without fear of exposure to the virus. And doctors are trying to find a way to provide that care without, um, without exposure. So I think that's really the big change that's happened in the last couple of months. Uh, May, what do, you, what do you see as the biggest changes? Well, Susan's absolutely right. The, the profile of telehealth has increased dramatically. Um, consumers before COVID-19, they really were not aware of telehealth or understood what it was. I've been doing this for, for 10 years, and before COVID, I still had family and friends who were confused as to what I did for a living. 
Um, I like the analogy of before COVID-19, telehealth was kind of like that unknown actor who got in a few roles over the years, but was not really known to, to like the general public, suddenly being cast in the next Marvel franchise movie series. Um, suddenly everybody knows who this person is and, you know, are trying to see what he'll be, he or she will be able to do. So that's kind of like the experience with, with telehealth. And as, you know, Susan pointed out, Given the the highly infectious nature of COVID-19 and the orders that came out for people to, you know, isolate or shelter in place, stay at home, there was that that need to still, though, allow people to be able to access health services. So the unique qualities of telehealth, which is, for those who may not be as familiar with it, is the use of technology to provide services when a patient and a provider are not in the same location. Um, that those unique qualities were able to really be applicable here during COVID in that, you know, you can still be sheltering in place at home, but still get the healthcare services that you need. So where we've seen like uh, dramatic changes, though, um, on the policy level was that the pre-COVID-19 policy landscape didn't necessarily allow for that to happen very easily. So that's why you saw so many policymakers, both on the state and federal level, making so many changes over like the first couple of weeks of COVID in order to allow those greater flexibilities for telehealth to be used on a more widespread scale. And what are some of those regulatory changes that we've seen at the beginning of the pandemic and as we move along and this goes on for months and months and months? So most of those changes really have to do with reimbursement because before COVID started, a lot of the established policies that you had both on the federal and the state level really centered around what would get paid if you use telehealth. Um, there are other laws around it, such as like licensing laws or, you know, how you prescribe if you use technology, but a lot of the established sort of policies were around reimbursement. And those were the ones that needed to be adjusted during COVID. Now, the, the major ones that we saw this, that were played out both on the federal and on the state level were policies that limited where telehealth could take place, like the location of where the patient was receiving the services when it was done via telehealth. And what we saw sort of like on a wide scale common type of policy change um, was allowing the patient to be in the home, and which was very logical, again, because of orders to shelter in place. Another sort of major thing that we saw that was very interesting because before COVID-19, it really wasn't regarded as telehealth. And that was the use of uh, allowing audio-only phone to be a way of like delivering a service. So before COVID, on the federal and the state level, a lot of people, when they define telehealth, did not include audio only within it. I mean, there are states that actually have a specific definition for telehealth or telemedicine, depending on what term they use, in statute or within their policies that explicitly exclude audio phone. However, policymakers recognize because of you know, the fact that some people may not have like, you know, adequate connectivity or like the equipment on their end in order to use telehealth, such as like, you know, smartphone or a laptop with a camera or something, um, that they, this may be the only way in which they would be able to receive some type of services and that's through the phone. So those were the two sort of major types of widespread changes that we saw taking place. And then there were other things such as 
allowing certain types of providers also to be able to use telehealth. A lot of times the policies might be narrowed to like just some types of healthcare professionals such as doctors or nurses or, you know, a dietitian or a social worker, you know, like expanding that pool of who could deliver services and the types of services that would be covered. And May, okay. are you seeing um, states um, continue to expand the parity rule? That is that the payment for uh, telehealth has to be at the same level as in person? Are we seeing more states do that? Um, not at this point. It, they're, 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 if they're introducing legislation, because that would have to be, if, if it's on commercial payers, they'll have to do that through legislation. Um, what we're seeing with the legislation, a lot of the legislation is in reaction to COVID. Mm -hmm. So they're just looking at, well, what were the things that we did in reaction to COVID? Should we make them permanent now? And that's sort of like what the majority of states policymakers are focusing on. So they're not necessarily focusing on that particular question of parity of payment for commercial payers. There are certain health plans that have said that they are going to be reimbursing and are reimbursing telehealth at the same levels as in person. And it was very specific that it would occur during the, the pandemic. So it'll be interesting to see whether commercial players who have flexibility in terms of what they do with their policies, whether they um, continue to, you know, voluntarily um, extend that going forward or whether that will, um, you know, end at some point. I imagine that that might end at some point barring any state um, rules or other state or federal rules. And I think one other um, uh, prior limitation, and of course, privacy is always a concern, and the rules under HIPAA limited um, use of certain types of platforms. And um, I think the federal flexibility to expand the number of platforms that could actually provide telehealth also gave providers that flexibility and confidence saying, okay, well now I can actually use FaceTime and Skype and this is gonna be okay and I'm not gonna get in trouble for using that. Um, would you say that that was also a factor that drove some, some increase in use? I think so. Um, part of that, that reason they did that, I believe, is that um, there was this rush of like they needed to stand up these telehealth programs really quickly. And there were certain rules, not only around like, you know, privacy issues, but also for for those who may have heard about it, there, there are things called like Stark or anti-kickback laws, which, you know, basically say things such as, um, you know, you have to do certain things in order to make sure you're not trying to gain the system and in Medicare or Medicaid and in receiving services when you do a relationship with like uh, another healthcare professional. Like relaxing of some of those because you're responding to this emergency situation. I think that did have a lot of influence as well for, for people who were, you know, really starting from like zero in like starting a telehealth program in reaction to COVID-19. That, that was less of an issue for, for organizations that of course already had like a telehealth program in place. And what are some of the differences that you've seen between Medicaid, Medicare, and commercial health plans in the use of telehealth during this time? 
So under Medicare, you know, I think there's been a, a pretty dramatic increase. Actually, across the board, there's been increases. Um, and, um, you know, as May said, uh, the federal flexibility allowed for increase in use. And um, let, let's uh, look back in 2016. There, um, back then, there was about 300,000 telehealth visits for that year for Medicare fee-for-service beneficiaries. And that was for the whole year. And, you know, we saw um, at the end of March from um, Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services Analysis that that had gone up to about 300 visits, 300,000 visits per week. So that's a pretty dramatic increase in the um, amount of services that were actually being provided under Medicare. Um, under commercial, you know, let's say pre-COVID, we're talking about, you know, maybe less than 1% of all visits being delivered by telehealth, you know, maybe a little bit more in some, some parts of the country. Um, but in March and April, when, we're, when we take a look at all visits that were being delivered, we saw about half being delivered through telehealth. So it's a pretty dramatic increase. Obviously, again, March, April, May, those were months that the shelter-in-place order were in um, full effect and um, things are beginning to open up. And in, even in the first couple of weeks of June, we're um, seeing a little bit of a drop-off there. But, you know, I do think that the um, increase now that everyone has had some kind of experience with it, um, there will be continuing to be an, an increase. Um, for a couple of examples for some specific plans, I do know that um, based on the public reports, the Blue Cross Blue Shield of Massachusetts, for example, they changed their policy to expand coverage for telephone and virtual visits and reimburse them at the same rate as, as an in-person visit during the COVID-19 uh, state of emergency. And they saw in March a... Um, 3,600% increase over, uh, over February. So pretty dramatic increase. And if, they, uh, if you look at the same time period um, of 2019, they saw a 5,100% increase. So pretty big, pretty big increases. I know that's also similar, um, Blue Cross Blue Shield of Arizona, based on their reports, they also said that they saw a 3,200% uh, increase um, in, in March and April. So again, pretty big increases. Right. So it's not just a single digit increase. We're seeing increases in the three digits or four digits. So yeah, I, I think the term here is orders of magnitude. It's definitely <laughs> pretty substantial. And how does reimbursement work with telehealth um, rather than an in-person visit? What are payers saying about telehealth? Mm. Mm. So, in in a lot of cases, um, definitely when you're talking about Medicare and a lot of the Medicaid programs, practically all the Medicaid programs, the a telehealth visit is paid the same amount as an in-person visit. Now, but but keep in mind though, usually it it doesn't mean like you know all all visits that. Medicare and Medicaid will cover in person, you can also use telehealth for. So there, there are limits in that way. But for those services that are covered that they say you can use telehealth for, they pay the same amount. 
Okay. Commercial pairs, it varies. I think Susan just you know, cited a couple examples where they said that they would pay the same amount during COVID-19. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it can vary across pairs and in states. So what actually the majority of states have at this point, it's like 42 states in the District of Columbia. They have in their statutes laws that actually apply to commercial payers and how they treat telehealth. And those laws range from everything from a state saying commercial payers, um, you can cover telehealth if you wish to, all the way to um, a state that will say commercial payers, you shall cover telehealth services the same way you would have if the service is delivered in person. And by the way, you will pay the same amount. And then all the other states kind of like fall in between there. There's actually less states, though, that have that explicitness in their laws saying you pay the same amount. So that's why you get this variability of like what the commercial payers do and like what they will pay. Do you think that the uptake in usage is here to stay or do you think it will peter out a little bit, a little bit as you had mentioned before, as things get a little better on the COVID front? I think there is the possibility that it's probably not going to, you know, run as hot as it has been in the early, in the first couple of months of COVID. So I I do think it will, what we're sort of seeing now when some of the shelter in place orders were lifting, we saw like the dip. I think that will, will be um, logical to see what we'll, we'll continue to see. Uh, The thing is, is that COVID's not, we're not going to go back to normal um, of what we had pre-COVID within the next couple of months. At least that's my opinion. So I still right. think that we'll still see the usage of telehealth, at least definitely through the end of the year, maybe even a year or two beyond that. Um, but there will probably be at some point where it kind of levels off, but it'll definitely be at a higher level than what it was pre-COVID-19 because you do have, you know, that added factor of like, some of the policies being more expansive, more broad on it, more providers who have put up or instituted telehealth programs still continuing those. And a big factor of like patients having received telehealth services, there are going to be some who didn't like it, but I think there's also going to be a good portion who did like it, who are going to say like, this was really great. I was able to go visit my doctor from home. I didn't have to go to the waiting room and they're going to want to keep that. So I, I think, it'll be natural for it to, to obviously not be at that furious pace that it was in, in the early days of COVID, but it's definitely something, as both Susan and I have said during this, this talk, like something that's here to stay. Yeah, and I would just say that, um, you know, I think there's a few different factors that would drive whether um, telehealth persists. And um, one that may touch on, of course, is payment. That's a big factor. Um, having that regulatory flexibility in payment policy will um, help drive um, uh, some some kind of sustained use of telehealth. Um, I agree it won't be at the same levels as during the peak of the pandemic, but certainly more than in prior years. Um, the other factor is doctors doctors, physicians, providers adoption. So, um, you know, I think physicians are now adopting it as well. They needed to because they weren't seeing any patients and they wanted to um, find out how their patients were doing, make sure that there was continuity of care, um, especially for individuals who are older, who had chronic conditions, you know, they needed to set up that infrastructure in place. So it really was 
um, a demand um, that we we saw, and the physicians really did want to say, okay, how can I continue to see my patients without you know jeopardizing their health and exposing them to the virus? Um, you know, one physician leader of a, of a large health system, um, I heard uh, admit that it, it was embarrassing that it took a pandemic to finally adopt telehealth, right? Um, it was on their roadmap um, and they were planning to do it, but the pandemic really made it happen faster and create an urgency there that wasn't there before. Um, and I saw a recent survey, um, a physician survey, where that they found that the use of telehealth has um, rapidly been um, accelerated by the COVID-19 pandemic. Almost half of doctors um, from based on that survey are now using telehealth to treat patients. You know, and as May said, that the consumers and patients, you know, before there wasn't really necessarily a groundswell demand, but now there is a convenience factor, you know, by being at home and not having to go in and see, see, see your doctor in person. So, um, you know, I do think that that is going to be a factor in driving consumer demand. So what have you both been hearing about telehealth from the provider perspective, from the patient perspective? Are there, is there anything that stands out to you that um, is especially noteworthy? So, sure, I'll share a report from uh, Mount Sinai. Um, of course, they're based in New York. Uh, they were at the epicenter of the pandemic a few months ago. Um, and, you know, they had a telehealth capability. They were doing uh, video visits, uh, especially for urgent care. And they were reporting, um, you know, back in late February, early March, maybe about 10 to 50 video visits per day. Um, and then when they moved into April and May, they were um, seeing about 3,000 visits per day. So a really big jump. Um, and of course, that uh, they had put in those capabilities in place because they um, wanted to make sure that they were continuing to serve their patients and keeping them out of the hospital. Um, and in early June, um, uh, we did see reports from Mount Sinai saying that, you know, the number of video visits did did trend down recently, um, but it's still fairly high. It is still um, uh, a modality that they are using to reach out to their patients. But they also said they, you know, it's not like they've done a lot of advertising or really done a lot of outreach saying that they have virtual care visits. So they do plan to advertise that the fact that they have virtual care services and that this is a new way that they want to keep in touch with their patients and ensure, you know, the patients have the care they need um, post-discharge and also for urgent care services. So um, that's the experience of Mount Sinai that I've heard. Yeah, I, I'm hearing similar things too from other hospitals and clinics. Um, you know, Almost exactly the, the Mount Sinai example was a children's hospital here in California who already had an established telehealth program that, um, you know, was seeing probably they estimated about like 100 telehealth visits a week when COVID hit, it went up to like 1,000 a week. And then as, as, the, as the weeks went by, it, it fell slightly to about 600 a week and held steady. There's another clinic that, you know, did not have a telehealth program and literally like over the weekend they had to, you know, launch and stand up a program. 
um, because they were saying nobody was coming into our doors, we, through our doors, that we were just not seeing anyone. So we needed to do this in order to survive. So over basically like a weekend, they managed to get a telehealth program up and running and they, they saw they didn't see like 100% volume return of like what they were seeing pre-COVID, but they definitely saw like, you know, a significant amount of people coming in. They estimated probably about like, you know, 50, 60%, and it was all telehealth. Um, on the consumer side, I, I'll just relay like an old personal example. Um, I have, my mother is actually one of those, those people who are in the most vulnerable um, population there to to COVID with like you know some chronic conditions some health issues and she's she's elderly she's a senior she had her first telehealth interaction um, during COVID nineteen and she she basically at the end of it turned to me and said that was it that was so easy and she goes why why was I going to the doctor's office so many times <laughs> we could have done it that way so it was kind of funny because she was she was one of those people who were confused what I did for a living and said this is what I do for a living mom <laughs> so but um but yeah so you know it, it's sort of like that I, I it's not like for everybody but it is like for a lot of consumers their first exposure and they're just like well, wow, this is like great to have. And, you know, I wish I had it like earlier. And what are you hearing um, doctors and nurses saying about how they're treating patients via telehealth rather than in person? Have you heard any anecdotes from that group? Yeah, and what I've heard anecdotally um, is that, you know, physicians that I've spoken to who new, are new to it do like it in the sense that they feel like the visit is a little bit more relaxed. They get to just spend more face-to-face -face time with the patient. Um, you know, sometimes in-person visit can feel very rushed. Um, there's something about the video visit, maybe because both parties are sitting in their home, um, but there's something about it that does... Um, feel more relaxed, which it seems like a plus. On the minus side, you know, the physicians say that they are spending quite a lot of time, especially um, depending on the specialty, um, in just kind of coaching the patient through some, um, you know, uh, some parts of the visit. So for example, you know, if um, an ophthalmologist might need to tell the patient, okay, can you um, position yourself in front of the camera in this way um, and then kind of coach the, the patient through um, th those sorts of things that, um, you know, just are needed during the visit that the, the physician might normally do during an in-person visit, but now they need to kind of uh, help the patient through. Um, so that's, that's, uh, that's, that's been interesting because now the physician has to spend some time actually training the patient on how to really optimize that telehealth visit. And that way the physician can get all the information that they need to make a call. And of course, if the physician doesn't feel comfortable that they really have gotten all the information they need during that visit, well, then they're going to ask the patient to come in. The physician needs to have the clinical guidelines. They need to have best practices. They need to have guidance to say, okay, when do I really make that call of saying, all right, um, I've gotten the information I need, I can make a clinical decision, or you know what, this is not sufficient, I'm going to need the patient to come in. So I know quite a few specialties um, are working on guidelines right now 
um, on supporting the physician, on various, you know, um, workflow changes, on clinical decision-making through the use of telehealth. So all of that is actually under development now. And so that I think will really help physicians um, increase their comfort level and um, potentially increase adoption. And on that note, there, I'm guessing certain areas of medicine where telehealth works better or certain populations where that works better. You had mentioned an elderly population who have, there's more of a, the coronavirus poses more of a threat to them. So do you think it's going to be used more among an elderly population? Um, Also, I had read that people with substance use disorders were not getting, uh, might not be getting the care that they needed. And there was some opening up of um, telehealth for that population. So are there certain populations, certain areas of medicine where the, you think the uptake might be a bit greater than others? Yeah, I definitely think at least a, a certain type of condition um, or a certain part of medicine where you definitely will see like, you know, a big uptake is um, where, where telehealth was actually very popular where it was utilized the most, a specialty where it was utilized the most before COVID-19, and that's with mental and behavioral health. I mean, especially now during COVID, um, th- people have seen like an increased need for the services. We, are, we already had that even before COVID. It's just like been like more of a larger increase of demand for it and need for it. Um, and that also relates to, Leslie, what you had mentioned about substance use disorder, because part of the treatment for substance use disorder does involve like counseling and behavioral therapy. So that's where a, a big area, I think, where you'll see probably even more use of telehealth to, to put, supply the services. Um, as for certain populations, um, obviously, it, it works well for those who would be in rural or underserved areas who, you know, just have access issues in general, even before COVID, of reaching um, healthcare providers and health services, just simply that there may not be a lot of, you know, the people that they need to see, like, around them. So um, that was one reason telehealth was utilized a lot in rural areas before COVID-19. I don't see that need going away. But now that they've opened up the policies to to allow it to take place in more areas, I think you'll see like urban people in urban settings who also had those same problems of like trying to reach like a certain type of specialist also using telehealth. I mean, there are, there are parts of LA um, where, you know, it can take you hours to reach like the type of um, specialist that you may need to see. Yeah, absolutely. I definitely think that telehealth lends itself better in some specialties rather than others. Um, So take, for example, COVID-19 related care. Um, Telehealth has been used, for example, to screen patients who might have symptoms and then refer them as appropriate. So telehealth is very useful for screening patients and then triaging them to determine whether they really have COVID related symptoms and um, whether they need to come in or whether they can be treated remotely. Um, Another use case uh, for telehealth that's really interesting to me is related to pregnancy and prenatal care. Um, You know, I imagine if you're pregnant right now, it's a very challenging time. Uh, If you need prenatal care and need to be using a hospital for labor or delivery during a pandemic. And a recent survey by the Blue Cross Blue Shield Association said that um, they found that 
about 61% of the women in their survey, um, their doctors had very limited office hours, um, and that 48% had their prenatal appointments shifted to virtual visits. So, you know, half their visits were shifted to virtual. Um, So, you know, prenatal care, um, especially if you have a non-complicated pregnancy, uh, could be a, a good uh, uh, telehealth could be a good option for prenatal care. Although one um, concerning finding uh, from that survey is that there were about um, a quarter of all women surveyed actually missed a prenatal appointment at the start of the pandemic. So that's also a concern, just the effects of COVID-19 and, and people just not getting the care they need. But um, hopefully with, uh, with telehealth, they could get some of that back. Um, Another specialty which I thought was interesting is um, oncology care treatment. Um, I know that in Kaiser uh, in Northern California, for example, in San Francisco, um, they have a a breast breast cancer oncology unit, and they had to um, limit, um, you know, in-person visits really to patients that require the physical breast examination, but other um, discussions that uh, include, say, uh, a multidisciplinary uh, visit, you know, um, an oncology visit might include your oncologist, your radiation oncologist, social workers, um, uh, genetic testing, et cetera. So those types of visits, they are um, able to s- successfully ship uh, to telehealth. So I think that's an example where you have certain specialties, uh, and depending on what services are being provided, can be successfully shifted to telehealth. One thing in this country that can sometimes be an issue is what's referred to as the digital divide, that some people in this country have access to internet, others do not. How is that affecting things in the telehealth world? It's a significant issue. I mean, without like that connectivity, telehealth simply doesn't work. Um, there, there has been a lot of discussion of it because as we move towards looking what to make more permanent from these temporary waivers, there is the concern of like leaving some people behind. Um, not only on the issue of connectivity, but also on you know, do people have like access to the equipment on their end? Like, do they have a smartphone? Do they have a laptop with a camera, etc.? So there, there have been discussions about that and some actions by the FCC to try to at least address the broadband issue. Um, but it, but it is a concern. It's like, what, what do you do in order to make sure there aren't large segments of the population who aren't able to like access this type of service or this type of um, technology in order to like get those needed services. And on that, wouldn't, aren't there a lot of people who might not speak English as a first language who might also mm-hmm. be sidelined because of it? Because I'm assuming for the most part that telehealth is being provided in English. Yeah, I mean, it's it's not only like a, a cultural issue as well with like, you know, language barriers, which has been, you know, a, can be addressed. You can have translators in the I'm not sure if all the states have. I do definitely know California, there's a requirement of like having a translator available. That still applies to telehealth. You you do not like avoid that like requirement because you're using telehealth. Um, But not only in, you know, um, people from different cultures, whether, you know, you 
how, how comparable they are with telehealth, which, by the way, is a rather understudied area. But you're also talking about maybe people with a disability, maybe people who are vision impaired or hearing impaired, you know, are, are they, their needs and their sort of like, you know, specific circumstances um, being addressed when you're using the technology as well. And these were, these were things that um, I, I have to say were, were talked about a little bit before COVID in the telehealth world, but they were not like large scale discussions in a lot of sectors. So, but COVID has really elevated a lot of these conversations to say more people are using this, this is becoming more widespread, but have we not paid enough attention to these particular populations and their specific requirements? Yeah, I would just add that, you know, we do know that, um, you know, not all households have a desktop or a laptop that have, you know, a camera, um, you know, I've seen that more than one in three households where, you know, the household is headed by someone who's over age 65 or older, they just don't have a desktop or a laptop uh, or might not have that smartphone device with a camera. One thing we don't want to do with the use of telehealth is really exacerbate um, issues of healthcare disparities. We need to think about how we're applying these technologies very deliberately. As we're starting to understand and see statistics regarding the cost of deferred care during the pandemic. How is telehealth offsetting that or affecting that? Yeah, so, you know, um, uh, Milliman Research has shown that the COVID-19 pandemic has really uh, have an impact on healthcare use overall. There's been Deferred care, there might be care that um, will not come back, so eliminated care. Um, and we're, we're seeing quite a lot of decrease in healthcare use overall during um, the pandemic months um, that will likely be sustained through the end of 2020 and maybe even um, the early months of 2021. Um, and telehealth has had some impact in uh in increasing healthcare use or, ba or basically offsetting some of that deferment. So, for example, um, you know, we've seen some clinics, for example, who've had to essentially shut down services. Um, and the way they have um, been able to offset some of that uh, decrease is by providing telehealth services. So, um, you know, if they, in the early months of March and April, they might have seen a 60% decrease, 70% decrease in total healthcare use. But then as they implemented telehealth, they were able to get about a quarter to 30% of that care uh, or their healthcare services back. Um, and able to provide some of those services. So um, telehealth has offset some of that deferred services. Um, it doesn't make up for the total deferred services, of course, um, since there are still surgeries and other services that absolutely can't be provided, of course, through telehealth. But some of the outpatient and physician office visits have uh, decreased in those services have been offset by telehealth. That's like one of the other effects that we've touched upon here that COVID has had is that it has had these 
this enormous impact on um, just health institutions, healthcare providers, and like their livelihood. Um, we, as a telehealth resource center, we do get a lot, definitely during the early weeks of COVID, we were getting a lot of questions from providers of how do I start this? What do I do? I, I've never used telehealth before. Um, and a lot of those inquiries that came in were from like, you know, solo practitioners or small practices who, mm-hmm. who were devastated by all this. I mean, you know, large hospital systems, even like a clinic, they, they, were able to figure it out um, probably a lot quicker than, you know, that, that small practice of two or three doctors or just even a solo practitioner, like, you know, a therapist, like trying to like sort out what they would do in this time. That's really interesting. I didn't, I was thinking about things in terms of hospitals, but I wasn't thinking of a doctor who has a little Mm -hmm. shop just on his own um, and, him having to figure everything out and how to implement things. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. that's a really interesting point. Yeah, got a lot of calls from like, you know, the that therapist who just like, you know, had a client list and suddenly the clients weren't coming in. Yeah, you know, and I think this also um, sheds a light on our payment system in general. The fact that um, practices were being paid on a fee-for-service basis then means that they're not providing the services. That means they're not getting paid. So I think this is actually going to be a, you know, a a way of thinking about just our entire payment system and how we move to more value-based payment systems. And that includes telehealth as well. So that way, um, you know, physicians and practices and hospitals have the right incentives um, to pay for value and outcomes and not necessarily just based on pure volume and the number of services that they're providing. So I think that's going to be another outcome of the of the pandemic. That's a whole other podcast, though. So. <laughs> Susan May, thank you for joining us. You've been listening to Critical Point presented by Milliman. To listen to other episodes of our podcast, visit us at milliman.com. You can also find us on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, and Stitcher. See you next time. Mm-hmm.